Hey everyone and welcome back to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a reader's guide. In the last section we talked about the tree on the mountainside and the young man who Zarathustra comes across who's engaged in the journey of pursuing the destiny of his soul in an ascendant way but is nonetheless challenged with all the obstacles that we will face on this journey. Essentially, Zarathustra says you have wild dogs in your cellar. You have this ball of snakes. You have this energy within you that is looking to express itself in a negative way, but you need to control it. And that this battle of asserting one's will over one's various desires and developing the strength to channel those in a positive direction is one of the things that we need to do to set ourselves on the path of becoming a stronger, better person. This involves some of the noble virtues of courage, strength, discipline, honor, respect, and having high hopes, manifesting the spirit of the hero, including the spirit of the hero inside of your mindset as the type of mental outlook that takes on challenges, forces yourself to ascend, and by facing challenges, reap the reward. In today's section on the preachers of death, similar to what we saw with the pale criminal, we're going to see a failed version of a human on this path. And many of us will have some of these feelings within ourselves as we might have in common with other characters that Nietzsche will describe, other types of personalities, other dispositions. And hopefully through analyzing it and seeing where these dispositions come from, we can understand what we might be able to do ourselves to redeem ourselves from having that negative disposition. So let's get into it. Chapter 9 On the Preachers of death. There are preachers of death, and the earth is full of those to whom rejection of life must be preached. Full is the earth of the superfluous, corrupted is life by the all too many. Let one use eternal life to lure them away from this life. Yellow ones, this is the name for the preachers of death or black ones, but I want to show them to you in yet other colors. These are the terrible ones who carry within them the beast of prey, and have no other choice than lust or self-laceration, and even their lust is still self-laceration. They have not even become human yet, these terrible ones. Let them preach rejection of life and themselves pass away. These are the consumptives of the soul. Hardly are they born before they begin to die and to long for teachings of weariness and renunciation. They want very much to be dead, and we should applaud their wish. Let us guard against waking these corpses and damaging these living coffins. They come across an invalid, or an old man, or a corpse. And straightway they say, life is refuted. 
but only they are refuted, and their eye, which sees only one face of existence. Shrouded in thick depression, and eager for the small accidents that bring death, thus do they wait and grind their teeth together. Or else again, they grasp after sweetmeats and mock their childishness in this. They cling to their straw of a life and mock their still clinging to a straw. Their wisdom says, a fool is he who stays alive, but such fools are we. And this is just what is most foolish about life. Life is only suffering, thus say others and do not lie. So see to it that you cease living. So see to it that the life that is only suffering ceases. And let the teaching of your virtue resound thus. Thou shalt kill thyself. Thou shalt steal thyself away. Lust is a sin, thus say some of those that preach death. Let us step aside and beget no children. Giving birth is laborious, say others. Why go on giving birth? One gives birth only to unfortunates, and they too are preachers of death. Pity is needed, thus say yet others. Please take what I have, please take what I am. Life will then bind me that much less. If they were to pity from the ground up, they would spoil life for their neighbors. To be evil, that would be their proper goodness. But they want to escape from life. What is it to them that with their chains and presence they bind others even tighter? And even you, for whom life is furious labor and distraction, are you not very weary of life? Are you not very ripe for the preaching of death? All of you for whom furious labor is dear in what is fast and new and strange, you tolerate yourselves poorly your industry is flight and the will to forget yourselves. If you believed in life more, you would throw yourselves away less on the moment. But for waiting, you lack sufficient capacity, and even for laziness. Everywhere the voices of those who preach death resound, and the earth is full of those to whom death must be preached. Or else, eternal life. It is the same to me, as long as they pass on to it quickly. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So this is another interesting mindset that Nietzsche identifies. And as with most of the mindsets, if not all of the mindsets that we see in this book, these are things that he pretty much experienced himself. And in the course of thinking and reading philosophy, reading religion and developing his own philosophy, and reading off of the development of his own soul, he's able to identify the value of these mindsets, the genesis of these mindsets, and how they might be overcome. So in this section, Zarathustra talks about two different types of preachers of death, and he describes some of the ways that they can be identified. The first section and the bulk of this section 
is about the type of weary individual who often, under the guise of religion, whether that's Christianity, the black ones, the, the priests and clergymen who wear black, or even people who subscribe to Buddhist philosophy who wear yellow and orange robes. Religious people will often, if they are this type of person, use singular aspects of their religious traditions to condemn life. As I've mentioned previously, there's certain ways of looking at Platonism, at Christianity, at this notion of having a world behind the scenes that's perfect, that we can't understand, and taking that idea and basically condemning the suffering and imperfection of this world that we do experience. And while it's not necessarily the case that you have to jump from the fact that this world is imperfect to wanting to die, or wanting to suffer no more, or wanting to just go to heaven or become a monk living on a mountain somewhere, like Zarathustra himself did at the beginning of this book, but often, in the point Nietzsche is trying to make here, is that, yes, there's suffering in life, yes, there's challenge in life, but we need to strengthen ourselves, we need to have more faith in ourselves, we need to have more faith in humanity, and we want to be able to bring something to humanity to help us elevate humanity, and even though that will take suffering, that's, that's one of the tasks that will give us a lot of value in our lives. So Nietzsche describes these people as consumptives of the soul. Now, consumption for people who aren't up-to-date on their 19th century English, is an old-timey word to describe the disease of tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis, I actually looked this up on Wikipedia. Uh, I think it's about a third of humanity today actually has tuberculosis, which is an astonishing number. And tuberculosis is a very enervating disease. It withers people away. Your body sort of eats itself and degenerates and becomes weak from the inside. And so when Nietzsche says that these are the consumptives of the soul, that these people haven't even become human yet, these terrible ones, let them pass away. He's comparing them to what a normal human might be, and then also comparing them to what a superior human or someone on the path to the overman might be. And he's saying, you know, these people aren't even human yet. They aren't even the common stock, say, farmer or blue-collar person who, you know, deals with the suffering of life and doesn't think too much about it and just lives for the weekend or lives for whatever they feel like living for. And those people themselves aren't the superior human who are on a spiritual journey of developing themselves, that these people are beneath both of those people. They lack the discipline to deal with the suffering. They may have, as Nietzsche identifies, a beast of prey within them. They may have dogs in their wild cellar that are looking to get out. But unlike the pale criminal who is unable to harness those energies in a positive direction, and unlike the youth in the tree in the mountainside who's on the journey of trying to harness those powers, these people are so weak in their mind, so weak in their soul, so fragile, so sensitive to the hardships of life, 
that they direct that energy in a negative way and they direct it against life. So when Nietzsche says that some of these people, they'll come across an invalid or an old man or a corpse and say life is refuted, he's essentially saying that there's a group of people out there, there's and many of them as he would describe it in this book, who look at some of the negative aspects of reality, whether it's war or murder or tragic, tragic circumstances about illness or plague or famine, and they'll say reality is a corrupt, awful place, we should just end it. And they'll look, in often cases, if they're religiously minded, to the concept of heaven or the concept of the reality behind the scenes as something that they'd prefer to escape into. Nietzsche says that these people are shrouded in thick depression and eager for the small accidents that bring death. They're very sad people, very depressed. Their eye sees only one aspect of reality, and that's the suffering aspect of reality. And they can't see other sides to reality. And not only that, they can't direct their energy towards it. I particularly like what he talks about when he says that lust is a sin, and let us step aside and beget no children. And that some other people say giving birth is laborious. Why keep doing this? One gives birth only to unfortunates. I've come across people, many of them actually, who don't want to have children. <laughs> I was at a party the other day, and we were talking about children, and someone said, oh, you know, it seems like such a hassle. I already have a dog, and, oh, you know, the dog is already too much work, and uh, I can't be bothered. Other people will say, oh, you know, the earth is a terrible place. Why would I bring a kid into this? It's just going to be suffering. It's just going to be suffering for them, suffering for me. Other people will even say, oh, well, you know, with global warming, every additional human adds to global warming and leads to catastrophe. We shouldn't have any more children. We, we've got to stop this. Whereas Nietzsche, in his view of reality as this will-to-power entity, very much sees having children and bringing children into the world as, yes, there's going to be a great deal of suffering for you, for them, that's normal. Reality does have suffering as one of the constituent elements of it. But to be successful in reality almost means to expand yourself as far as you can within reality and then to have children to carry on that tradition, to push through the generations onto the overhuman. And so, I know I sort of blew through the first part of this section, but I know that many people feel this way. And I know I've felt this way, that, you know, there's just suffering everywhere. All I feel is suffering, and maybe you've felt it for a couple of years, and there's no, no point at which things look like they're getting better. And I think that's where some of the wisdom of Nietzsche putting this section right after the tree on the mountainside section comes into play, where he sees this youth is on this struggle, where things are negative, the wild dogs are barking with delight in their cellars, that these negative things are trying to manifest themselves in the world, and the more we try and ascend, the more every step makes you hate yourself. But when Nietzsche tells the young man to keep hope in his heart, He's saying, listen, I've been there. I've lived this life. 
And I can tell you that if you can strengthen yourself into someone who can deal with reality, deal with the obstacles of reality, and work towards a goal that you care about with those noble virtues in your heart and with a heroic mindset, things will get better and things will become much more meaningful for you. And so if you are the sort of person or you know someone who only sees the negative aspect of reality, who seems buffered about by the negative aspects of reality and they can't seem to find their way, they can't seem to get out of that depression, they might say things like Zarathustra quotes in this section. They might have a negative eye for reality and they might wish that their negative reality would cease to exist. And so when Nietzsche says, thou shalt steal thyself away, thou shalt kill thyself, this should be taken as a hyperbolic statement that we need to remove that part of our mindset. We need to move beyond that part of our mindset. We need to understand that yes, reality is suffering. That's the first Buddhist noble truth that life is suffering. But if you keep on on this path of trying to develop yourself and trying to do things that seem to be fulfilling to you, things that speak to you, things that are in line with the expansion of your virtues, you can move beyond this depression, you can move beyond this suffering, and you can strengthen yourself into the sort of person who can deal with the suffering, identify other aspects of reality that are positive, and embrace both of those in your struggle to carry on yourself and to have children and pass that on to them. Now Nietzsche, in a very insightful way, recognizes that if you take his advice in the previous section on the tree and the mountainside and dedicate yourself to working hard, improving yourself, developing yourself, working on things that matter, you might do that wrong. And in the second half of this section, he identifies the type of people that are doing this wrong. Those for whom life is furious labor and distraction. All of you for whom furious labor is dear and what is fast and new and strange. He's saying that these people also have a negative eye for reality. They can't tolerate themselves. They can't tolerate their lives. And so instead of maybe like someone in the first half of this section is depressed, has no energy, can't dedicate themselves to anything, and just sort of sits around suffering, the second approach to this is to just throw yourself into your job or throw yourself into a series of meaningless distractions that essentially are not in line with who you are and only serve to distract you from the suffering that exists in life. I happen to know a lot of people who have very demanding jobs, whether it's in banking, consulting, lawyers, what have you. I happen to know other people who have a bunch of different hobbies and they're constantly going to see people and go to parties and drink a bunch and do a lot of coke and do whatever. And these are the sorts of people Nietzsche's talking about who don't believe in their own lives. They don't believe that life can really offer them anything. And they hide 
from taking time off to be with themselves and to consider who they are and what their life is going to mean to them. Those questions are very difficult. And as we've noticed a couple of times in this book, in order to put yourself on that path of really questioning who you are, what your life means, where you're going, what the destiny of your soul is, not only are those questions very hard, but they entail a number of different life choices that are hard to make. And even when you make those choices, the path is very difficult. You have to go into evil. You have to go into yourself. You have to really learn who you are and what's wrong with you and what's right with you. And then build your life to be structured in accordance with that. I think it's a fairly common enough trope that maybe you see a big businessman who's oh, a big banker. And he's working 80 hours a week, and he's got the nice car, he's got the nice cottage, he's got the beautiful mansion, he's got a bunch of kids, he's got the wife. And his life on the outside looks very nice. But if you ever get to know any of these people, you know that there's constant suffering, that there's something wrong there, that he's at work all the time, so the kids don't really get to know him, they start resenting him, that maybe he doesn't pay enough attention to his wife, and the relationship falters and they get a divorce. And then you have a broken family. The person buries himself more into work, buries himself more into acquisition of resources and getting the right promotion, getting the right thing. And he thinks that these things will bring him satisfaction. But all of the important things are falling apart around him. And it's not good for him. It's not good for his wife. It's not good for his kids. I heard a story recently about a partner at a consulting firm who was on a phone call on a Friday night with one of my friends. And they were looking at some deck that they had to present to the client the following week. It was 8 o'clock on a Friday night. And my friend told me that halfway through the conversation, he heard some door in the background on the other end open up. And the call got interrupted because this partner's four-year-old daughter came running into the room saying, Daddy, 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 let's play, let's play. And Daddy, the partner, said, Oh, sorry, sweetie, I've got to work. And the four-year-old daughter just said, Work, work, work. That's all Daddy ever does. And then sort of sulked away, sadly. And that story just broke my heart. And I think it's a very good example of the sort of person who doesn't know what's important, doesn't know what's important to them, and thus suffers as a result of it. That kid's going to grow up not having the greatest relationship with her father. The father's not going to be able to impart any advice or wisdom or any of his experience that might be relevant to that child because the child's just going to say, well, what do you know? You were a terrible father. And I know a lot of people personally who fit into this mindset who they work crazy hours, they party hard, but as time goes on, you can't escape the fact that what you're doing and what you're focusing on doesn't necessarily align with your values. It doesn't necessarily align with your virtues. And as time goes on and you dedicate your life to the pursuit of things that aren't in line with your values, Things in your life will fall apart, 
and this growing sense of unease will continue to develop within your soul. And you'll become bitter and resentful and negative. The last thing I want to talk about is a fairly interesting idea that Nietzsche describes about pity. For Nietzsche, pity is the worst thing to happen to humanity. He hates pity. He thinks pity is a very enervating force in humanity. That through pity, you can essentially direct the will to power in a negative way and take away someone's self-sufficiency and development. So when he says, if they were to pity from the ground up, they would spoil life for their neighbors. And the way I like to think about this is picture a town with a hundred families in it. And there's a hundred houses. This neighborhood, this town, everyone in it maintains their houses, they've got good jobs, they're friendly with each other, and they work hard. And through time, that means that the houses are maintained, the, the town is growing. Through the discipline of hard work, you're able to grow who you are. And not only that, but you're also able to reinforce those values that allow you and the town to propagate yourselves further through time in an ascendant way. You can reinforce those behaviors in both your neighbors and in your children. And through time, you know, people will learn from the experience of their parents and they'll take that a bit further and the town will get a bit better and everything overall gets better. But of course, that requires hard work, dedication, some of those more noble virtues that we've talked about. And it requires it over a long period of time. Now, let's say some tragic accident befalls one of the households in the town. Say, some natural disaster knocks down the house, kills one of the children. It's obviously a terrible situation. But let's think about the types of responses that can occur within the town and the people living in the town and see what might happen through time based on those two responses. So on the one hand, a continuation of the sort of noble virtues that we've been talking about the rest of the town decides, oh, no, this is terrible. We, this is so sad. The child has been tragically taken before their time. This house has fallen apart. This person's job is obviously sort of on the rocks before they can get their lives together. But let's help encourage these people. Let's help rebuild the house. Let's all get together, be there for the person, support them through this difficult time, but then encourage them and the family to rebuild the house get everything back in shape and keep on working and keep trying to find some sort of fulfillment and meeting in life despite the tragedy that's befallen them. What might happen in that case is, you know, it's a tragic accident, but life is suffering, life includes suffering. But if it's approached with the right attitude of, I'm not going to let this get in my way. Yes, this is terrible, but let's not let this negatively affect us too much Maybe the house gets rebuilt, maybe they don't have another kid, maybe they do, but 
They continue working hard. And the town is almost made stronger by this. They've seen a tragic accident, but they've been brought closer together. And everyone appreciates each other that much more. And everything they do has a little bit more meaning in it because they're closer, because they've done something hard together. And through time, again, that will carry the people in the town and the town itself forward and upward into the future. In the second case, let's take one with a lot of pity in it. And obviously in the first case there's going to be some pity, but there's also a lot of encouragement and strengthening and resolve that's required. But let's take one with just pity. Okay, this house has fallen down, a child has tragically been killed. What might happen if only pity is taken into account is the people in the town bring that family into one of their houses and they're so forlorn and they're so sad and the people in the town just cater to the family. They just say, oh no, don't, don't worry about the house. What, what matters now is your healing. Don't worry about your job. Don't forget about it. And maybe they don't push the person to get better. Maybe they don't push them to keep on working on themselves, keep on working on tasks that mean something to them. And so maybe the house and the land become fallow. Maybe weeds start growing. Maybe it becomes overrun by nature. Maybe the people continue living in the basement of one of these other village dwellers. And maybe they turn to drugs or alcohol. And instead of people noticing, oh, hey, this probably isn't very good for you, they say, oh, no, well, he's been through so much. And, you know, these drugs aren't bad. They help. They help. Let's, let's pity this person. The negativity in the soul of the person who's, who's fallen into that addiction, the fact that now one of the houses has fallen into disrepair, there's a spiritual and mental impact that that will have, not just on the people whose house is in disrepair, but also the other people in the town. Maybe the neighbors say, you know what, I'm going to take less care of my lawn because there's all sorts of wild stuff going on. There's raccoons everywhere, and oh, geez, there's birds who crapping on my roof and pulling tiles off and oh you know like there's just so much negativity and oh there's no promise in this life man that was so tragic that could happen to my kids oh well what if this happens to me and then those houses start falling into disrepair and those people start going to work in a much more negative way and they don't care as much maybe they see that random tragedy can just befall anyone so they stop putting in as much effort and then maybe those houses, you know, they let the grass grow too long, or maybe they start drinking a bit too, but maybe not too much, but still a bit. And instead of working and being friendly and working with the community towards something positive, they become withdrawn. They become more negative. They become less caring. And if this continues, maybe those people's neighbors start to say, oh, you know, this is so bad. This tragedy has befallen the town, and everyone's so depressed. This is horrible. Oh, now my lawn's sort of crappy, and oh, maybe I'll just, okay, forget it. I'm not going to weed the lawn. I'm going to go drink with these people. Because, you know, when they drink, they seem sort of fun. Oh, you know, this degenerate behavior seems sort of interesting. Maybe I'll try that out. And you can see, obviously it's a very simplistic example, but that's a decent description of how Nietzsche sees pity possibly affecting people's lives affecting the lives of people surrounded by those people, and affecting even the physical reality that they live within. Everything becomes a bit more run down. 
and the approach isn't one of, okay, yes, this sucks, but let's get through this, let's build on top of this, where there's a strengthening, there's this focusing of the will to get over and beyond, and maybe even above what happened, the will withdraws. It's an enervating process. People become depressed. People become withdrawn, and things start to fall apart. They deteriorate. So Nietzsche sees pity as having this very negative effect because, as he sees it, the will to power is this expanding process that, as we've seen, can go up or down. And he sees pity as very much the road that forks down. And when he says that to be evil, that would be their proper goodness. That's a very interesting thing. And Nietzsche, in the book that he wrote before this, I think he, he described it best. He said that, you know, all in all, if you look at a group of people, a society, a community, what have you, evil people can actually have a tremendously good effect on the community. Now, obviously, outside of the tragic and evil things that they might do, say that there's a, a thief, or say that there's a robber, or say that there's a murderer. Obviously, this is an evil person with their malicious intent bent against the people in the town. Evil can have its obvious impacts of whatever's been stolen or whatever's been robbed or whoever's been killed. But it can also have an energizing effect. It can have a tonic effect on the people around it. It can unite people against evil. It can unite people against the obstacle that's been put in their way and give them motivation to get above and beyond it. And it will bring the community closer. It will remind people how to act and how to behave. And as we'll see many times in our own lives, as the youth on the mountaintop noticed, that the negative experiences that we have, the run-ins with evil that we have, and the run-ins with negativity that we have, if taken the right way, without pity, but more with the noble virtues. Those evil things can be overcome and they can strengthen us. And that's one of Nietzsche's brilliant insights that I've loved wrapping my head around. And it's the title of his book that came after this book, Zarathustra, Beyond Good and Evil, where he looks at the value of good and evil. And he looks at the widespread and interconnected impacts of these things. And so he sees the noble virtues as being the ones that can deal with these challenges, deal with the negativity and suffering of life, and help us get beyond them, rather than the pitying mindset of perhaps the good person who only cares about the emotional impact, who only cares about the suffering of other people, and don't encourage them to get over and above what's befallen them. So we're going to see some of these themes and some of these people come up later in this book. Obviously, the noble virtues will be very important to the mindsets and characters that Nietzsche comes across and shades in a positive way. The next section, for example, is called On War and Warrior Peoples. So he talks about these strong warriors who go out and fight what they need to fight. And obviously, the noble virtues will be of the utmost importance in that section. And we'll see in the section after that on the new idol, 
where Nietzsche talks about the state, the government, and how the government and the state are needed by the preachers of death and desired by the preachers of death and desired by the good people. And we'll see how pity, as opposed to the noble virtues of hardness and harshness and discipline, interplay in all the different mindsets of the characters that we see in this book. And it's important as we go through to identify what resonates with us. Where are we? Do we have any of this preacher of death within us? Do we have any of the desire to just drown ourselves in work and accomplishment and getting this and getting that? And really meditate, as Nietzsche encourages us to do in this section by saying, oh, but for waiting you lack sufficient capacity and even for laziness, by having that otium, which is a Latin word for leisure, having that leisure time, having those moments of reflection to figure out who we are, what challenges we actually face, what matters to us, who we are, and then use our energy to overcome those things. We're going to come across many of these different mindsets that Nietzsche went through, maybe some of us went through, and it's very important to figure out, hey, you know, I, I do have some of that preacher of death in me, you know, I, I've gone through a lot of depression and you know, I remember one time I was walking down the sidewalk one night and just wishing a car would veer onto the sidewalk and end the suffering for me. Maybe if we can recognize those things and see what Nietzsche's talking about, see what Zarathustra is talking about, we can stay on the path of the youth on the mountainside who can deal with the negativity, who's honing him or herself to pursue his or her virtues and go to a place beyond good and evil. Go to a place where you're strong enough to take on reality, strong enough to become who you are, and strong enough to build your life and the structures of your life around things that push you upward and forward. So that's all I've got for this section. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to get in contact with me, you can email me at alex at alexdrake.ca. And if you know anyone who you think might like this show, or some of the messages that I'm trying to get across here, please share with them. All right. Thanks, guys.